10 media trends you need to know, and niche, it's the new mainstream. This is episode 60 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I am Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Episode 60? Can you believe we're at 60? Wow, I'll be feeling young soon. <laughs> 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 yeah, most of the people online are saying that with episode 30. Exactly. Um, 10 media trends you need to know, Tom. This was actually a pretty refreshing piece. This was from uh, themediabriefing.com, and uh, it's a story told of a presentation at something called the Changing Media Summit by a guy named Tom Goodwin at Zenith USA, which does a lot of work in this area. I think of Zenith, I think of the old TVs, you know, yeah, exactly. but I, I don't <laughs> think this is them. So he had uh, 10 trends that he was talking about that I think, and none of these, I think it's fair to say, you or I would describe as earth-shatteringly new, right? No, they're not new. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, let me go through some of them. You can tell me the ones that, uh, that you think we should spend more time on. But here's number one, abundance. Well, of course. He says, we need to be mindful of the incredible amount of content that's available, but also our complete lack of attention. Most people pay to it. The amount of content in the world is paralyzing us all. I thought that was interesting because I thought, well, I don't feel paralyzed by content. Do you? No. It, it, the problem is not on the consumer end. You know, he, I think at the end of that, number one, he said that grabbing meaningful attention is the greatest challenge. Mm -hmm. And... Okay, I agree. You know, and I've been working with organizations for years trying to help them do just that. So I feel kind of qualified to tell you that the greatest challenge is to first understand what that statement even really means. <laughs> Grabbing meaningful attention. You know, what does that mean? Why is it important to the business and for the customer, the consumer? And then even greater challenge than that is once you understand that, Figuring out how you're going to get people to step out of their accepted comforting work routines and relationships and actually change how things get done, that is the greatest challenge. Well, now you're talking about an organizational challenge, right? This well, what's is he not, calling this? This is not the consumer. You're not talking about the consumer now. Now you've shifted to problems in tackling this, this, this well, challenge from the said. organization. He said standpoint. grabbing meaningful attention is the greatest challenge. I think he means of media companies. Well, he means for media companies of consumers, right? Yeah. Yeah. He says, but still, I don't think he understands. Okay, I'm with you. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. I mean, before that, he says, we're always designing adverts, which is how they say ads, right. I guess, in the UK, with the assumption that people have spare capacity and time. I don't know. I think we're designing adverts with the assumption that kind of that's the only thing we know how to do to capture whatever meaningful attention we possibly can. That's my point. Yeah. So there is no assumption of anything. It's mm -hmm. everybody's on autopilot pumping out content. Yeah. When he says that's what you do, right? And when he says grabbing meaningful attention is the greatest challenge, it, it, I think the one thing that stands out there to me is, well, okay, and how do you do that? Question mark. Exactly. And as you indicate, part of the problem is just a structural one. I mean, I was talking to someone today who was talking about changes in his organization and how he sees things evolving over time. But the, the reality is that he's so busy as a senior guy in his organization that he literally can't take a moment away to focus on the future because the present makes him so darn busy. That's it. 
And you see that in all of your presentations when you talk to these these people Every, at these conferences, don't you? Everywhere. It, it is the funniest thing in the world to have people say to you, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I, ca- I cannot slow down. Yeah, it's like some kind of addiction. <laughs> it's fear. It's fear that if they stop for a minute, instead of having 1,000 emails to respond to, they have 8,000, and then what are they going to do? You that's know? true. <laughs> so that's what it is. Yeah. Um, His point number two, digital disappears, and this is kind of abjectly true. Here's his quote. The younger you are, the less the concept of time spent online makes makes any sense. For 14-year-olds, for there to be an online, there would have to be an offline. (laughs) We talk about social media as if it's an activity that people do rather than just the way things are. Digital is like oxygen. It's there all the time and surrounds us every moment of every day. We can't base our businesses on the, quote, digital, end quote, concept. It has to be an integral part. This is, I think, it's just abjectly true, but still ultimately an evasive concept for people who are accustomed to dealing in silos and categories and channels, right? Well, yeah. Listen, if you have a story and then your story revolves around you, not around the external world, not the customer, not the consumer... And then you see this thing called digital. What you do is you take your story and then you rewrite it and you say, how do we shove digital into the story? Mm-hmm. Instead of looking externally at the world and saying, hey, what are people's desires? What are their behavioral dispositions? And then designing your offering around that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what they do. Design it around how they like to do things. Look, I, I, here's a question for you. What investment since 2010 has outperformed Apple, Facebook, Google, and Amazon. <sighs> you got me. What is it? Domino's Pizza. Because <laughs> they created these crazy apps yeah. that people like to punch little buttons on their phone and get their pizza and track mm-hmm. their pizza, mm-hmm. and it blew up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, I don't think Domino's said, what's our digital component of the pizza? No, they said, hey, we can trans- we we'll blow this whole category upside down. Yeah, they, they didn't pl- say they didn't say uh, what's our digital strategy for Domino's or how do we promote Domino's more effectively using no. digital platforms. They said people come to us for pizza. How can we make that more fun, more efficient, uh, more exactly. compelling, more engaging, whatever? And right. uh, regardless of platform, and if it it so happens that digital is a big uh, key to that. That that's it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And again, businesses, firms, companies, brands are generally not structured for this, right? They're built in more traditional ways, using more traditional categories, and this is an awkward transformation for them. But it's inevitable. No, um, it's here now. <laughs> yes, and it's, it's his, his third point, which is very much related to that, is the horizontalization of media, which is easily one of my least favorite words ever, horizontalization. I'm not even going to try to say that. I know. We still have media channels, which are vertical silos, but it doesn't really work like that anymore. This relates to what we just said. Phones can do everything in the world. TVs are almost there. The industry isn't segmented vertically, but horizontally. There's no reason why Facebook can't control TVs and the media or why Spotify can't launch launch a video channel. This goes back to a theme we've stressed previously, which is once you have the circle of attention and the circle of engagement, the circle of consumers that are interested and desiring what it is you provide, then you have the opportunity to, to um, uh, solve more problems for them, to resolve more desires for them, to satisfy more desires for them in whatever way you're able. I was reminded about this as I was reflecting recently, because and this is something you and I have talked about, 
you know, in the audio space, for example, there's this preponderance of events. There's the uh, the podcast movement mm. event, yep. which has throngs of, of, of podcasters attending. There are broadcast events where the broadcasters go. There are Hispanic radio events where the Hispanic broadcasters go. Sports events where the sports people go. <laughs> talk events where the talk... And it occurs to me that all of these people... I actually had one conversation with a guy, high-ranked in a firm that does a lot of podcasting. And he made reference to the people who are consumers of podcasts as a community. He said to me, you just don't understand the community. And I thought, the community of what? The community of people <laughs> who consume podcasts or the community of people who are interested in audio entertainment and information regardless of platform, right. which, by the way, is a much larger community. So don't talk to me about community. Talk to me about consumers and their desires. So this horizontalization uh, topic, I think, is really poorly understood and again, it's people find so much more comfort in a silo, don't they? Again, it, it, it comes back to that story thing again, right? The companies think, and this is based on, listen, it wasn't long ago that a brand signaled to someone what they were receiving right. as value, right? It's like, oh, okay, this company, oh, I know what they make. Yeah, they make computers or this company. Make, no one cares about that anymore. Mm -hmm. People are looking for better value in all categories of products and services, and they don't care much who brings it to them. Mm -hmm. The old days of resting on some long-standing brand reputation or technological edge, whatever it is, that's gone. Mm -hmm. Because this whole consumer loyalty thing has always been an illusion anyway. <laughs> loyalty compared to what? Yes, or exactly. Or options compared to what, right? Yeah. No, it's like, look, give me something better. You know, mm -hmm. oh, who, who are you? I don't care who you are. This is what I'm trying to get across to people. It doesn't matter. If Geico starts a TV station tomorrow and they have the content that people want, people will be watching Geico TV. If they have the relationships with consumers that can, that can, that, that, that can introduce that content to them, right? That's this right. is why, for example, on a TV network, having a, uh, a lead-in still matters. Doing promos still matter right. if you're a TV network because the best chance of getting someone to watch your show is the fact that they watch the one before it. Right. I mean, so having that existing relationship with consumers is really the key. Capturing attention in the absence of that relationship is nothing. I'm working with the podcast company, as you know, and one thing they told me flat out that being a featured podcast in iTunes means you're going to get a certain number of you know uh, hits to your show, but being featured in the context of existing shows with that already have a relationship with this provider means you will get 10x the number of listens. Exactly. So the, the, the place where I already have the relationship is going to introduce me to far more consumption for relevant content than the place that has no relationship, just, you know, desperately searching for uh, attention is not an effective strategy. Of course, and so why do you think why do you think Amazon's ad sales are starting to blow up? I mean, punch in a right. book that you're interested in. Look at the paid recommendations that come up now for books mm -hmm. for similar books. Mm -hmm. That's how you find things. That's right. It's a great Amazon's a perfect example. The world's largest bookstore, not that long ago. Right. And that the fact that they were able to be and do that is enable them to be and do what they are today. And it's exactly that kind of vision that allowed them to 
break away and say, what are we really, what are we doing really, what desires are we satisfying really? Otherwise, they too would have been the people to come to you at the end of a conference saying, you know, Tom, tomorrow we're going back to our desks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He had a point in here, lines blur. What is TV? It's a screen we, is it a screen we watch, a context for consumption, a delivery mechanism, a show length? If it's delivered through the internet, is it still TV? Is Netflix TV? Is watching a highlights reel on my phone TV? This is why I always have the arguments with people about why do you draw the distinctions between, for example, in the audio space, online radio, uh, streaming radio, um, 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 terrestrial radio, podcasts, it's audio, and it dep- the difference is whether we want it or not and whether we can get it the way we want it on the platforms we want, right? That's true. You know, and I was thinking about something, no, Mark, tell me what you think about this. So, so the devices d- defy categorization, I, I get that. But here's the question, if we can't differentiate consumer engagement and interest among these various devices, which, by the way, requires some type of categorization. In order to differentiate, you have to categorize. Then how do we compare value, right? So I want to run an ad, mm-hmm. and you're sitting home in front of you, a big flat screen TV, and the ad is showing there. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to pay X amount of, for that. I'm guessing because of the circumstance, the situation. Mm-hmm. Now I'm in an airport and I'm stuck between gates and I'm flicking my phone and I see that ad stuck in the front of a YouTube, right? Am I paying the same amount of money per person, per view? So somehow we have to be able to know what makes something more valuable with regard to engagement and interest. What's funny about that particular example is, as you know, in the latter case, we're paying less per person, per view than in the television case. And the question is not is it because we're creating more value in the television case it's more because we've created an inability to obviate the message <laughs> in other words we've boxed you in we've made it impossible for you to escape the message that's what creates the value so in other words the value is all in the wrong direction okay but still it, it is a way of you know differentiating in, in pricing media yes so I don't think that's going away. No, Somebody's it's, still going to want to know. <laughs> it's clearly not going away. The question is, is it, you know, how long is that differential going to exist? And um, I, I think that's a, that's a very real question. I don't know that there's a good answer to that because the, clearly the value proposition is in the wrong direction. Right. Well, one of his last points here, I'm just skipping around a little bit, is the e-commerce separation. I like this one. Separating buying and shopping may not seem like the most obvious trend to pick up on, but Goodwin made the case for the acts themselves being very different. Um, Here's what he said. We tend to have actions and reactions, and we're going to see the act of buying separating from the act of shopping. Buying will be the world of the search bar, subscriptions, dash buttons, and the purchase funnel will be a simple swipe. Shopping will be created around themes, content marketing experiences, and adding more joy into the purchase process. To adapt to this trend, he has one piece of advice. Make things easy or beautiful. If it's neither, it has no place in the future. (laughs) That sounds right to me. Well, no, it's a puzzle. It it sounds right, but it's not right. I'll tell you why. (laughs) No, I'll tell you why. Because even if it's beautiful, it had better be easy too. 
Well, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you make something beautiful and some other guy's gonna make it beautiful and easy. Okay, so wait a minute, because there's a lot that's on Google right now, Google ads are, I wouldn't call any of them beautiful. They're easy. But they are easy. Right. So you can be easy if not beautiful. You're saying you can't be beautiful unless you're easy because someone will make your beautiful easier. You've got to be both. <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're gonna, listen, if you're gonna be in a bar and you're gonna be easy, okay. There's a lot of other people who are gonna be easy. But if you're gonna be beautiful, <laughs> you can go ahead and you can try to be hard to get. It's not gonna work today. These bars, are, you're in LA, baby. You gotta be beautiful and easy. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that does make the value proposition more more obvious. I think that's a wonderful illustration, Tom, for all the reasons. <laughs> I don't we know both where know. that came from. Don't email us. <laughs> You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Maysecker and Mark Ramsey. Tom, niche, it's the new mainstream. Um, I think <laughs> okay. it's been the new mainstream for a while now, but I'm just I'm I don't know. The more I think about this particular topic, the less certain I am. This is from a piece and from a blog by an author named Henry Jenkins who wrote the book called Spreadable Media. And the title is, How Did We Get So Many Great Television Shows? It's an interview with a guy at UCLA who's done a lot of research in this area. And it's, it's interesting, but fundamentally, I'm not sure what the, whether, the, whether I agree with the points they're drawing from this here. For example, some of the stuff he says isn't new. The sheer volume of scripted TV content was and continues to exponentially rise. We know this. When I was a kid, we had three networks and maybe 30 to 40 shows on the air scheduled in time slots. Now, over 440 scripted shows on the air uh, uh, across too many platforms to mention here. Are we currently in a content bubble? Sure. But I'm not sure the choice is ever a bad thing. Is it sustainable for the studios and networks? Probably not. I see a natural form of attrition happening. The bar keeps rising on high-quality, engaging, fresh content, so the mediocre shows won't last. In the book, I refer to this phenomenon as digital Darwinism. Now, first of all, I'm sure he didn't create that term, right? (laughs) We have heard that before. But secondly, I was kind of thinking about this and thinking, well, wait a minute. Does the uh, burgeoning number of scripted shows imply that there's going to be digital Darwinism necessarily? Will the quote-unquote best shows be the ones to rise to the top? Or just as in Darwinism, are the, you know, the ones that are adapted to their environment the ones that rise to the top? I mean, that is Darwinism, right? It's not, not about quality. <laughs> no, I agree. Survival and of the fittest is not survival of the best. No, I, I, that's, people get that confused, you know, and, and, they, and they also think that, that fittest has something to do with um, <clears throat> some kind of conscious, you know, strength and growth and it, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, it, it, it comes from, uh, you know, genetic mutations. <laughs> it gets mm-hmm. random, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, people, it's not like I had any effect over it. But right. he says that the challenge, and you're going to have to help me with this. He says the challenge has become directing attention because of this glut of content and ensuring yeah. access to all of the innovative new content. Okay, so this is interesting, so help me. Let's assume that some new show, this innovative new content, it gains access, some, I don't, how they do this, I would love to know, but let's say Netflix or Amazon buys it. Now, so that's, that's the access. Now, directing attention. Help me understand where this directing attention comes into play. Do the players who wrote, produced, and starred in this TV show, do they get a piece 
of the additional action that's driven by directing attention? Because I don't even know what that additional action is. Do you know what I'm saying? If I'm paying a subscription and I'm getting all of this stuff free, who's going to try to direct my attention to a particular show and what's in it for them? Well, okay, there a, a, a couple of things. First of all, there's the sheer scarcity of the slot, okay? You can't get to that point unless, in other words, you're competing for that platform as a producer, as a showrunner. You can't necessarily get on that platform. So um, just to get on that platform is one form of directed attention, right? Because there are a lot oh, of shows... Oh, you're, you're not saying directing to the consumer. You're saying directed to the buyers? Well, I mean, but you, you can't... I mean, the first step in getting to the consumer is being on the platform. Okay, so now you're on the platform. Now, now who's going to direct your attention to a particular show on Netflix? Um, it, that's where uh, the publicity machine kicks in and where all the conventional rules that have been around for 100 years apply. And I'm seeing that play out right now in the podcasting space, Tom. It's, it's just amazingly routine, the process of trying to, you know, uh, shop um, a show to media platforms so that enough people can discover it who didn't know about it before. Because until some, you know, the time when everyone really wants to talk about something is when it becomes a hit. And the time when you really need them to talk about it is before it becomes a hit. No, I, I, I get it. I get it. Listen, I'm, I'm discovering shows all the time on, on Netflix and Amazon Prime. And I, I've never had, my attention has never been directed to it. Well, but so, is that true? It depends. Because if you go to Amazon Prime, you're going to see that they showcase their Amazon originals right up, above the proverbial fold. Okay. No, I'm with you on that. Yeah. So they are directing. And I think because of the data available to Netflix and Amazon, they know exactly okay, how no, to that's, put stuff in front of people. I'm, I'm with you. But that's a computer algorithm. Yes. There's nobody paying for that attention. Um, well... I don't... Or maybe there is, and I don't know. Um, but again, let's go back to your Amazon example of the sponsored um, uh, books, right? Yeah. So that's clearly being paid for. It's the right ad in front of the right person at the right time, and it is trying to generate attention. And another analogy, I guess, would be what's going on now in terms of movie theaters, because we're getting closer to a time when you will have the ability within, say, 15 days, 20 days, 30 days of the opening of a movie to get that same movie at home. The only question is, will it cost you $30 to do it or $50 to do it? Mm. But you will be able to do it. So in that sense... Um, you know, the attention is going to be funded by the people with the biggest stake in the outcome. But I get your larger point, which is, you know, these 440 shows of which you and I couldn't name more than a dozen. <laughs> if that. Yeah. I mean, who, who is, I mean, are these, they really just hoping for lightning to strike? And I have to tell you, Tom, I think in most cases, the answer is yes, they are hoping for lightning to strike. That when some, when IFC adds a new show to their schedule, how they gauge the success of that show really is relative to the success of the other shows on IFC. And uh, they have a pretty low bar. This, yeah, it, that's what I'm trying to get at here. Do you think Netflix is doing the same thing? So when they buy a show... Do you think that, they're, that, that there's some kind of gauge of success, uh, uh, um, say, number of viewers, 
I'm just trying to understand the, the, the monetary well, here, here, component. Me, the, you know what I mean? I, he speaks to that in the piece. And let me, let me right. share with you what he says. Here's what he puts, puts out there. The other enormous shift in the TV landscape has been its focus from broadest and safest shows to series that might appeal to a small but fiercely loyal and dedicated audience. A subscription on-demand streaming network needs lots of choice, not just a series that appeals to the widest possible audience, but multiple shows that may appeal to different slices of the audience, hence niche is the new mainstream. This is analogous to, for example, satellite radio. I mean, there's a wealth of stuff on satellite radio that nobody knows is there. Even the people who work there don't know it's there. But the truth of the matter is that any one of those components on satellite radio, it doesn't matter. I just heard of a show that Craig Ferguson is doing. You know, that should <laughs> yeah. be a pretty big deal. Nobody's right. heard it. Nobody knows about it. Nobody knows when it's on or what channel, and they got 120 channels. So, um, but from their perspective, it almost doesn't matter that you value this show. It only matters that you value some number of shows that together create enough value for you to justify the money you're spending every month on the platform. So in their case, um, they could have 440 shows and they don't care which ones you like. They only care that you like some, enough to, 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 to boost that value proposition over the threshold that justifies a subscription fee. So that's why I think in cases like that where we're dealing with platforms like Netflix, like SiriusXM, um, attention is actually less important than passion because the passion for a small number of shows will justify the subscription. So attention to any show is actually not relevant. Um, that's my, see, that's what I was trying to get at because when he talks about being in a content bubble, and I see it, but you see, the issue that I have, it's interesting because there's a, look at it this way. There's a content bubble in books. There's a content bubble in music. But here's the difference between those. There's little investment required right. in books and in music. I'm talking about by the artists, the creators. Right. So it will never burst. But when Amazon and Netflix are buying these shows to bundle them mm -hmm. into an offering. And they're not really too concerned how many people watch which shows. Mm -hmm. They're just interested in increasing the number of subscribers and the monthly rate. Then eventually, if they can't keep that up, they have to, they're not gonna have the money to keep buying these shows. Well, I, I think mean, that's what he's talking about, right? That's true, but think of who their competitors are. I mean. You know, the networks, are the networks going to pay more? Maybe, but the shows are generally too risky for the networks because look at what's at the, I, I, I ran this, look at what's at the top of the networks. The top 10 in broadcast, by the way, during the prior week, the past week, um, let me see here. There are oh, two, flavors of, <laughs> two flavors of NCIS, right. which is not exactly risky, adventurous programming. There's This Is Us, which is, I think, a bona fide hit. There are one, two episodes of The Voice, which is reality, 60 Minutes, which is news, Little Big Shots, which is a game show with Steve Harvey, The Bachelor, which is reality, and Grey's Anatomy. I mean, there's barely any scripted content in the top 10. Uh, and then when you go to cable, when you go to cable, it's, it's even worse. You've got Walking Dead at top. You've got some sports programming. You've got, and then it's all um, uh, news programming aimed primarily at uh, older white folks. I mean, that's what's at the top 10. So clearly, the idea of making a hit is different from the idea of making a living when you're uh, a Netflix or an Amazon. <laughs> okay.
Yeah, well, we're, we're going to see. I, I think the future, I don't know if niche is the future. I think bundling is the future. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's more about the platform, not only that, but the business model. The business model for uh, Netflix is one thing, but consider the business model for Amazon, where, look, anything they can do to push you into Prime exactly. is going to make your propensity to buy more things on which they can make a lot more money having nothing to do with programming a whole lot better. So that's the win for them. I think it is. Time for rants and raves, Tom. Do you have something this week? Okay. I have a little bit of a rave. I think it's pretty good. And I hope maybe others will pick it up and adopt it, or at least something, <laughs> something similar. So a few months ago, uh, NRK Beta, and they're the tech vertical of the Norwegian public broadcaster, NRK. Mm-hmm. And they figured out a way to keep the conversation in the comments section on their website respectful and productive. Yeah. So much so, Mark, that commenters now share links to books and other research about the topic in question. They ask clarifying questions. They offer constructive feedback. You want to know what they did? They charge for access. Nope. Uh, okay, go ahead. So that was a good one. That's yeah. a good guess, though. <laughs> what they did is they introduced a new feature that works like this. So on some stories, ones that they're sure are going to create controversy, right? Potential commenters are required to answer three basic multiple choice questions about the article before they're allowed to post a comment. <laughs> so in essence, to take the edge off of ramp mode, they make readers pass a quiz before commenting to ensure that the commenters have actually read the right. article before they discuss it. Mm-hmm. Now, it's brilliant especially from the psychological side effect that by forcing someone to take a little extra time to think about the comment they're about to post, mm-hmm. it helps them slow down and consider their tone and the value to the conversation. They call, call it forced mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So I think we should put something in so that we have to force people to be mindful before they send us an email about <laughs> our show. Especially this week. <laughs> exactly. That's a great one. That's good. I like that. Yeah, well, too. I'm uh, trying to edit for time here, so I'm going to. Um, uh, I had a couple of things. I'm going to take one out and focus on the one that really steams me the most. Oh boy! And this one, you know, by this point in the show, who knows who will be listening? So we'll. Uh, it may get <laughs> us into trouble. It may not. But there's a piece I just saw from Jay Bear, and you know Jay Bear. Jay is yep. a kind of a social media gadfly. He's uh, one of those guys who goes to every conference and does a presentation every conference and in the hopes that someone uh, hires him to present at another conference, from what I can tell. And uh, anyway, very uh, smart guy, very hardworking guy. Anyway, he was quoting uh, statistics on a study that uh, Edison Research did for podcasting, the Infinite Dial study. And his piece was titled, The 11 Critical Podcast Statistics of 2017. Now, um, look, I get the whole idea of the glasses half full. And I get the idea of trying to look for the positive and, you know, preach it to, to the mountaintops and all that stuff. But I think, you know, you got to just stand back a little bit and see this in its proper context. Because I, you, wait till I describe to you some of the kind of breathless metaphors he made here and tell mm-hmm. me if you think this is appropriate. Here's one of his critical statistics. 67 million Americans listen to podcasts monthly. Now, um, that's up 14% in one year. Today, 24% of Americans age 12 or older listen to podcasts monthly. So if you skip the previous two numbers, the 14% increase, which sounds like a lot, or the 67 million, which sounds like a lot, you get to a number that's one out of four, okay? Now, that's not a small number, 
But, you know, one out of four is one out of four. Let's keep it in perspective. There are a lot of things we're talking about, let's keep in mind, a free media experience, right? right. YouTube is free. Um, television is free. Radio is free. All these things are free. So is podcasting free. Um, 24%. In that context, we might cons- uh, presume that that's something of a small number. Here's the other thing he does, which irritates the heck out of me. Oh, boy. For context, 21% of Americans are Catholic. Thus, podcast listening is more common than Catholicism in the United States. Now, <laughs> Catholicism, Tom, is an identity that one is born with. Podcast listening is a choice, a consumer choice in a marketplace of media choices, m- many of which are free. Okay, So I think to compare the two things is a little strange for starters. Makes me wonder how many Catholics listen to the podcast. There, yeah, there's a, there is some answer there. Okay, then he goes on to the weekly numbers, which I think are, are more interesting. 42 million Americans listen to podcasts weekly. Well, this is truly a big number, he says, as it represents 15% of the total population. So he's gone from a 42 down to a 15 uh, right off the bat because the, the relevant number is the 15 and if you think of 15%, he has to put that in context. Here's what he says. For comparison purposes, 3% of Americans go to the movies weekly. Now, I thought, okay, let's leave aside the reality that the average price of a movie ticket is $8.65 <laughs> and the average price of a podcast is zero. Okay, let's leave that aside. 3%, I thought, where did that statistic come from? So I went looking really hard and I thought found his source. His source was Statistica because he didn't list the source. Statistica had statistics. They were for adults, i.e. 18 plus. So if those numbers are right, and I'm not so sure, those numbers are for persons 18 plus. I looked at other data and I found percentages that were, you know, all adults, all persons. Oh boy, he worked up the data guy. All persons, (laughs) the the numbers were between five and 10%. So that means between five and 10%, depending on the numbers of all people, are doing this thing at 865 ahead that only about double that many are doing for free. So again, does that sound good to you? So I, I just, I think the better comparison than 15 to three is a comparison between 15% who listen on a weekly basis to podcasts and the number who listen during that week to say another free platform of audio entertainment called, oh, I don't know, radio. That number's up in the 80s or 90s. So, I, I, again, I'm all for, you know, proclaiming the joys of podcasting. I just think we need to see the numbers in the light of reality and not see them from our own particular perspective. Finally, I want to add this one other topic. So, um, I don't think it would be too inappropriate after that particular rant for me to pimp my, pro- my podcast, would it? <laughs> no, do it. Why did you wait until now that I've told in the show? Now that I've told you that oh <laughs> those God. numbers Jeff, are... Jeff, ins- move, this, move this little segment up <laughs> into the front of the We're show. We're running the longest episode ever, and this is where I choose <laughs> to do it. So, yes, um, my project is called... Is, uh, I, uh, after all that, now I'm pimping a podcast. Shouldn't I have done it the other way around? Yes, exactly. So, the show is called Inside Psycho. It's a six-episode um retelling of the crazy story behind the making of the movie Psycho before the inspiration for the story, during the making of the movie, and after kind of the release of the movie and the, uh, the, the legacy of the movie and all that. It's intended to be very entertaining. It's not a dry, 
you know, thing for film nuts only or Hitchcock fans. Um, I think it's told in a way that's really quite fresh. It's got an incredibly immersive sound design, and certainly anybody who listens to this show, I think, would enjoy it as a piece of entertainment, which is really what it is. Um, as of this recording, the show was released. The first two episodes out of six were released today, and the last time I checked, Tom, uh, it ranks number 16 on the iTunes chart awesome. overall. Awesome. So uh, it's up to number 16. It's number one in the movie's TV category. I would invite people to go check it out. It's called Inside Psycho. Make sure to tell your friends because from the looks of it, only 15% are going to listen in any average <laughs> week no matter what I say. So <laughs> that's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at art19.com. Radio Inc., Media Village, Google Play uh, Music, and TV News Check. Although I'm not so sure about TV News Check. They changed into something else, and uh, we, I may have to cut them off. <laughs> you're going to cut I'm them gonna off. I'm going to cut them off. <laughs> you can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send mm. us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, keep it to yourself by all means. <laughs> Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, the amazing Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at Jeff-Schmidt.com. For the one and only Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening.